Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Emmanuel. We thank you for God with us, Jesus Christ in the flesh. Thank you that you came to seek and save that which was lost. And we thank you that you're still doing that. God, we ask this morning that you would do that miracle in any heart that's here that has not been made alive in you. We pray that, Lord, through the proclamation of your word and the power of your spirit, that you would save people today. Pray, Father, for those of us that know you as Savior, that you would strengthen our hearts. And as we sang, God, be willing again and again and again and again, day by day and hour by hour, to lay down our lives for you, the one who bought us by his blood. Thanks for being good to us, God. Just give this time to you. Pray that you'd have your way in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, let me apologize from the get-go for my voice this morning. Um, it's a little bit froggy. Uh, if you got your Bibles, you can grab them. Go to First John chapter four. But before we get into it, uh, as you guys know, we're having a baptism service today, and one of the guys getting baptized is Mr. Dan Yoder. He's here somewhere. He's not hiding from me. He's oh, right in the front row. Come on up, Dan. And I asked Dan just to share for just a just a couple minutes. A little bit about what God's been doing in his life and why he's getting baptized today. Let's go ahead, buddy. Thanks, Eric. You bet. Um, like uh, Eric said, my name's Dan Yoder. Uh, when he asked me to share, for some reason I told myself that it'd be okay and there wouldn't be that many people here. But with that being said, um, <clears throat> I was born and raised in a Christian home and uh, I moved out when I was, soon after I was 19 years old, and uh, was not following Christ by any means. And uh, I got baptized in the late 90s, early 2000, and the reason I say that is because I do not remember which year it was. So, <clears throat> with that being said, um, the last couple years, God has been tugging on my heart, asking me if I really do know Jesus, if I really have Jesus in my heart, and, and I guess I didn't. As baptism, I didn't understand baptism. I didn't truly get baptized for God and for the Holy Spirit. So, I guess we all follow one God. There is only one God. There's only one God that is in power. And with that being said, today I want to renew my faith and just be immersed in baptism. Because I think that's what God wants me to do. So I have a couple couple verses that I want to share. That oh, this morning I went out to do chores and feed the dogs, and when I came back in, my oldest son. I'm sorry. Was singing at the top of his lungs, the song "Waymaker," and that really struck to my heart. 
because there's only one way maker, and he's the promise keeper that the Almighty God. John 7, 38, 39. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe in him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And when I opened this little book that one of my bosses gave to me years ago, that was the first verse that stood out to me. Also John 3, 3, 7. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kin to the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Good job, buddy. Thank you. You know, all of our stories in coming to know Christ, um, they're all different. They're all unique in some ways, and yet there's another way in which they're all the same. Because it's all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, seated at the right hand of God, and it's all by the power of the Holy Spirit that has saved us. And thank you, Dan. Good job. Appreciate that. Hey, if you got your Bibles now, grab them, go to 1 John. Um, this past week, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know, we, the Bible reading plan, um, where we would just read one chapter uh, a week together as a church, then talk about it, um, was in chapter 5, and I'm going to get into chapter 5 a little bit, but I'm going to actually finish up the end of chapter 4, um, because I just felt like uh, there's a lot in here I want to talk about, and um, so we're going to go 1 John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 7, but then we're going to roll into chapter 5 through verse, through verse 5. Now, I usually read it at the beginning for the sake of time. I'm not going to do that this morning. But if you've read this at all, um, there should have been a word that jumped out to you as you were reading it. Um, chapter 4, verse 7 through 21, and then chapter 5 uh, through verse 5. That's a total of 20 verses, I believe. But there's a word that is repeated 32 times in those 20 verses, and it's the word love. This text is literally saturated with love, saturated with God's love. And my prayer is that we too would be saturated with the love of God this morning as we study it, as we look at it together, as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, and as we leave this place with the opportunity and the privilege uh, to love all those that we come in contact with. Doug Wilson, who is a pastor in Moscow, Idaho, and a fairly prolific writer and um, 
blogger and kind of a cultural commentator as well too. Um, he, he says this, and I agree with this wholeheartedly. He says, in the culture wars, the central battle is the battle over the dictionary. We are in a fight to the death over the authority to define. Shall it be God or shall it be man? Who's going to define terms? Who are we going to let define terms, God or man? This is true of things that maybe we never thought would be up for debate. It's true of what a man is, it's true of what a woman is, it's true of what a marriage is, but it's also true of what love is. It's true of what love is, is that the world has a definition of love, um, and their definition of love uh, has real consequences, because the world would say uh, many times that we as Christians are not loving because they're working from a different definition of love. But last week we spoke about truth and what truth really is and the real Jesus and not the fake Jesus that is many times proclaimed. That's an idol, um, that Jesus does not exist and he will not save. And this morning what I want to talk about is real love, real love, God's love. Not love as the world loves real love. And just like talked the last couple of weeks, the, the fake Jesus, the idol Jesus that we've created in our own image, the reason that matters is that Jesus won't save you. That Jesus cannot deliver you. That Jesus cannot change you. In the same way in regards to the real love that we're going to talk about this morning, not the counterfeit love. The world's love will not change you. Human definition of love will not transform you. But God's love, his real love, it will not leave you the same. It will not leave you the same. It will change you. It is real. And on what the, the big idea that I just want to plead with you about this morning as we just walk through this passage of Scripture is I want you to examine your life and just simply ask the question. And here's the deal. I, just for your own heart, for your own heart, do you know the real love of God? Not the fake love. Not the counterfeit love. Everything that God does, the world and the, the flesh and the devil, they're always going to offer a counterfeit. But that does not mean that the authentic does not exist and that we cannot have it. And I'm afraid that many people, even when they grow up in church, they hear about this love, but it's a counterfeit love. It's not the real love. But God's love is real and it never grows old and it will change you. It will change you. So this morning, just to give us a little bit of a road map as we work through this, again, this is quite a, quite a bit of text and there's a lot in here and so, you know, we won't hit everything, but just some of the big kind of movements through the text are this. We're going to talk about God's love to us, love through us, love that drives out fear, and faith that drives our love. Love to us, love through us, love that drives out fear, and faith that drives our love. First of all, love to us. This is the love of God. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for, why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If anyone does not love, or if anyone does not love, anyone who, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God 
is love. God is love. And he's, his thrust here is that we're going to love one another, but before he speaks of how we're to love one another, he first talks about how God has loved us. Because again, in anything that we're going to define, uh, and in this case, what we're going to be defining is love, we have to not start with us. That's what the world does. That's why the world has a counterfeit definition of love. It has a counterfeit definition of who God is, of who Christ is, because we tend to start with ourselves. That's not where you get proper definitions from. Where you get the correct definition is by looking away from self to God. And so before he's going he's gonna to talk about throughout this passage how we're to love one another, but in order to really define that love, he says we first need to start with God. God is the source of love. Love is from God, and God is love. Um, this word here at the end of verse 7 and also in verse 8, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John has used that word a lot throughout. Again, in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. And, and you've heard me uh, say this because this word uh, know or for knowledge appears many times throughout uh, the New Testament. It's this Greek word gnosko. And um, it's not the idea of knowing math or knowing science, but it's the idea of knowing your spouse, of knowing your kids. It's a relational type of love. Okay, And so uh, in the Bible, you will not actually find the phrase anywhere, uh, do you have, a, or the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? However, I do think that that question is, is legitimate because uh, of this word, this is what it's essentially speaking to, is it's not just talking about a head knowledge, but it's talking about a relational uh, knowledge, a relationship with a person, with Jesus, with God, with the Holy Spirit. Um, and while just head knowledge will not change you, a relationship with God, the God who is love, it will change you. It will change you. Um, and so he talks about how we've got to start with God and God's love. And then he rolls into verse 9. And he says, In this the love of God was manifest. Manifest means brought to light, okay? And he's talked a lot about light, walking in the light throughout this epistle. Um, in this, the love of God was made manifest. And there's several things here now about God's love that if we're gonna understand it, define it correctly as God defines it that we need to understand. Number one, just like we need to look to God, but secondly, uh, or we need to look to God in order to know love, but secondly, we need to look to Jesus, you, you can't know God's love apart from the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. If you want to know what real love is, you have to look at what God did by sending his son. Jesus is the expression of God's love. And therefore, to teach a different Jesus, as we talked about last week, is to teach something different about God's love. Because Jesus is the expression of God's love. Notice also that God's love here, um, it's the initiator, not the responder. It is the cause, not the effect. That God took the initiative to love us while we were still unlovable. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
saying maybe, maybe, maybe human love, maybe human love would be willing to lay down their life. Like maybe I'd be willing to lay down my life for Clint because Clint, he's just an awesome guy. Just wonderful. And so maybe I'd be willing to do it for him, but, but maybe not somebody else because maybe they're not worth it. But while we were still sinners, none of us deserved it. God laid down his life for us. He did something about it. He made it manifest. His love gives life. End of verse 9. That God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. His love gives us life. Now, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, remember a couple months ago, I think it was when we were in Genesis and maybe um, the Gospel of John as well, we were talking about how death doesn't just mean ceasing to exist, but death, biblically speaking, actually means separation. Okay, it's not, death is not just ceasing to exist, death is, is separation. Um, that spiritual death is to be separated from God. Okay, and that when we physically die, we do not cease to exist, but we will live in eternal death and in, in eternal punishment if we do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so in the same way here that death doesn't mean ceasing to exist, um, life or God's love giving us life or, or truly living through this love, it doesn't just mean existing. It means being whole. It means being one. It means, be, it means being united with this God who loves us. Again, this relational knowledge through the power of the Holy Spirit that he sent. It gives us life. Real love gives life. Also, it was costly. God's love was costly. Um, he sent his son into the world. Uh, in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So again, don't look to yourself, not to us. Look to him who sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That he bore the punishment that we deserved on the cross. Many of us, when we're in love, and we're in love with our spouse, our husband, our wife, or our kids, um, we know that there's going to be cost involved, and we, and, we, and we love them. But if we're just being honest, okay, can we just be honest here, please, for a second? We don't know exactly how much it's going to cost us at times. Like, we don't know what it really means. And when we love them, I'm not complaining, but I'm saying what it really means to love your kid and you finally get them down about 11 o'clock when they're little, and they finally fall asleep, and you tiptoe out of the room, and about 15 minutes later, you hear them begin to scream, and you're exhausted, and you've had a long day at work, and you gotta get up early again the next morning, and so we go back in, and you get them, and you, you know, try to get them to sleep again. Love is costly, and it costs us, but if we're honest, we don't know exactly what it's gonna cost on the front end. And if we did, I wonder how much we'd love, but God knew how much it was gonna cost on the front end. To love us. He knew exactly how much it would cost. And he did it anyway. And then lastly here, in speaking of God's love and defining love, uh, this is probably the thing that's most shocking and yet most important for us to have a biblical, Christ-centered definition of love. Is that we cannot understand love without talking about our sin. And this is where even people in the church get it wrong many times. I mean, come on, John, why are you still talking about sin? I'm a saint now. 
I don't want to be reminded of that. Let's just keep it positive. Let's not focus, let's not focus on the negative. That's the way we talk many times in the church, but John does not shy away from this. Again, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've talked about that word in the last couple weeks, about this idea of propitiation, that Jesus was not only a substitute, but his substitution was, was adequate. And it, it was like he was like a sponge that absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the punishment that we took. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And here's the deal is that we cannot speak of God's love um, without understanding our sin, okay? And the more we understand the offensiveness of our sin, the more we will understand his love, and the more we understand his love, the more we will be appalled by, but also amazed at the offensiveness of our sin and that God chose to love us anyway. To speak of love without speaking of God removing your sin is not to understand what our greatest need is. Why does John not say here, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to walk on water, to feed 5,000 with loaves and fishes, to do miracles, to heal, to calm the storm with a word. As amazing as all those things were, as much as we should marvel at them and be in awe of them and worship them because it points to who he is, if he had done only those things and not been the propitiation for our sins on the cross, we would still be without hope. Love meets our greatest need. God's love met our greatest need. If my car breaks down alongside the road because my alternator gives out, I need a new alternator. And God bless you if you come by while my car is alongside the road and you say, hey, I want to help you change your tires. Okay. Great, but that's not what I need. It's not what I need right now. And what we needed was saved from our sin. What we needed was saved from the punishment that we deserved. And God met that greatest need by sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God. He saw what we most needed even when we didn't understand that we needed it and he met it anyway. This is the love of God. This is God's love to us. Now John rolls into God's love through us. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he so loved us, not just superficially, but if he so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love demands a response. It demands a response. If it has come to us, then it must, it must come through us. And this is how you know if the real love of God has come to you because it must come through you. It will come through you. It's not possible for the real love of God to come to you but not come through you. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love caused him to act. God's love caused him to make manifest his love as we just talked about. And if his love is in us, it, it will also cause us to act. Verse 12, and it says, No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us, and his perfect love, and his Love is perfected in us. Now, this is important because as we've been studying John, and for those of you that call Mercy Hill home the last several months in the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13, 17, also here in First John, John talks a lot about abiding. Primarily, when he uses this word abide, he's talking about us abiding in God, resting in God, being at home in God, just resting, trusting, trusting in him. But here he flips it, and he does it in a few other places. But he says that no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God is going to abide in us. God is going to abide in us. So if this real love that God has for us has come to us, and now it is coming through us to one another in the way that we love one another, God is pleased to abide there. To abide there in a real way. And I take this to mean that when he says abide here, okay, so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit is in you. He is resident in you. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit if you have trusted in Christ. But that does not mean that you are living in practical victory every day if you are not seeking to moment by moment trust him and be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow the Spirit to control your life. In the same way, in a church, a people, we can say that we know God and we can love God on on a certain level, but unless we understand the love of God and all that he did for us and are willing to lay down our lives in the same way that he laid down his life for us, when we begin to do that and love each other as Christ has loved us, his spirit wants to come and to abide among us. And it is his spirit that will change our lives I do not care, I, I, or let me say it this way, I don't want Mercy Hill to be known for anything other than that the Spirit of God abides among us. I don't want to be known as the church that has an outhouse on stage or that has chickens in a weird barn, like, you know, or even some of the good things. Like, I, I just want to be known that the Spirit of God is here. It's what we want, and here's... And here's Here's what this is saying. We play a role in this. Is that if you say that you've experienced the love of God, then we play a role to, yes, if this love has come to me, it must come through me. And just like it costs Jesus, it will at times cost me. But as we all commit to do this together, God wants to come and he wants to abide among us in ever-increasing measure. And again, he says here, then he goes on after speaking about abiding, verse 14, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is in the Son, God abides in him, and he, and he in God. Or, I'm sorry, it's at the end of verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. The real presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And you know, guys, last week, for those of you that were here, excuse me, speaking of false teaching and the counterfeit Jesus, the idol Jesus that is preached many times today. It's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about not taking, not reaching out and grabbing hold of the counterfeit, whether it's counterfeit truth or counterfeit love, is because only the real thing will change us. I, I want God's presence to be among us in power. And if you don't think we need it, I I don't know what to say. (laughs) Because people are hurting. Even Christians, even people who know, there's so much pain 
in this world. Because of sin, because of the flesh, because of the devil. And I'm telling you that the answer to all of it is the presence of God. It is the real Holy Spirit, not the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Where we just get emotional and just try to work something up. And many times end up doing weird stuff. I reject that wholeheartedly because I want the real thing. But it's not because I don't believe in the supernatural. But I want the real supernatural. I want the real Holy Spirit. Nothing is too difficult for him. And we will experience it. It is ours in Christ. If we live our lives amazed by the love that he has for us and allowing that love to come to us and then through us. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe is willing to abide among us. With his very presence. The Bible says that in God's presence, the mountains can melt like wax. Anything can change in God's God's presence. And then when God's presence is among us, what are we going to testify to? Verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. What are we going to do all the more as God's presence dwells among us? And people ask, what, what, is it? what is it that you have? What is it that has changed your life? We're going to say, Jesus! Jesus is the one that has changed me. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, it's not love or truth. It is both. It's love and truth. God abides where there is real love and God abides where the truth of the real Jesus is confessed. Do you want to know the love of God? Do you want the Spirit of God in you? Do you want to know that there has been a propitiation for your sins? Then simply confess, profess, agree with what God says about his Son, that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Um, Verse 16, and we have come to know and to believe the love of God that God has for us. God is love. He says it again. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There's a maturity that needs to happen in us where both truth and love come together. And we understand that we're not called to either be a truth-loving person or a loving, kind, people-loving person, but that we love both, that we both love the people and that we love the truth. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, this is kind of a picture of what I have in mind in regards to how we need to grow as a church in being mature as his body, okay, as Christ's body. Um, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, seen some guys that they're really big and jacked, look like they spend a lot of time in the weight room. Um, and And if you would ask them to squat or to bench press, they could probably lift a lot. Okay, but when it comes to just like functional life, okay, they kind of walk around like this and they're kind of, you know, picking stuff up. It's not like, like they're good at bench press and they're good at squatting, maybe good at some curls, but how functional are they with what they have? And I feel like this is kind of how we are sometimes as believers and it's how we need to grow in our maturity is that if you ask a certain question, certain people, it's about the truth. 
and we can just bench press a lot and we know that, but we're not real good at applying that in other areas in our life and the way that we love people. Listen, I, doctrine, all, all theology should lead to doxology. In other words, it should, lead, it should lead to worship. And the way that we worship is by laying down our lives for each other. Is that when we love each other, it's worship, it's worship unto God. And there's a, um, there's just a disconnect sometimes uh, in certain things that we function in and we might be good at, but do we know how to be both fluent in truth and also fluent in the way that we love? It's not either or, it's both. Third, God, not just God's love to us and then through us, but then he's gonna speak about how love drives out fear. Love that drives out fear. And this is, many commentators think, that this, commentators think that this is kind of the high point of the book here, that it's kind of like a crescendo uh, of sorts. But verse 17, he says, by this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love Perfect love. And where's the perfect love come from? God. That's the perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, how does this work? Here's how this works. Fear of, of any sort, but especially fear of, of judgment as he's speaking here, but I think it applies to fear of any sort. Fear is always going to cause us to have some sort of self-preservation. And if we're acting out of self-preservation, we will not love well. Because you remember how did God love? How did Jesus love? He laid down his life. He didn't exercise self-preservation when they came to arrest him and nail him to the cross, although he could have. But he was not afraid because he was trusting in the perfect love of the Father. Fear will always lead to self-preservation, and self-preservation hinders love. Even though it's kind of like a silly thing, but I used this at a small church the other night. I got this white shirt on, sorry, for a second I thought I saw a stain on it, but um, I drink coffee every morning, like if I had spilled some coffee on my shirt this morning, um, I mean, I, I don't think I'd have done this, but I'll be honest with you, there would have been a part of me that if I had spilled coffee on my shirt this morning, I'd have been kind of like walking around like this the whole time, you know, just kind of wanting to, wanting to cover it, wanting to cover that stain, because I wouldn't want you to see it. Now, I know that's kind of a silly example, but in, in doing that, even in that sort of self-preservation that I wouldn't want you to see a stain that's on me, it would kinder the way that I would communicate to you this morning. You'd be like, why does he keep holding his hand there on his chest? What's he doing? Um, in the same way, no matter what the fear is, no matter what the fear is, if we allow that fear to control us, it's going to hinder the way that we love. And how do we get rid of it? Through perfect love. Perfect love casts out or drives out fear. If, if our lives, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. <coughs> Speaking of being self-conscious and uh, not wanting to be self-aware anyway. Okay, so let's say this cup is, uh, is you, all right? And you are filled with the dirty water of fear, okay, and, uh, and uh, self-preservation because of that fear. And we all have, and here's the thing, what some, many times we're, we have on one level some legitimate reasons to be afraid. 
Bad stuff has happened to us. It's been painful. Sin that's been done to us. And it, it causes a trauma of sorts, and it hurts. And so we have fear in our, in our cup. What we want to do is we want to just take that cup full of the dirty water fear, and we want to just dump it uh, out. We want to just dump it out and just be done with it. And we say, why, why, can't, I, why can't I do that? I just, I just want to get rid of this. I want to forget about what happened to me. I want to forget about what was done to me. I want to forget about what was said to me and the fear. But here's what John is telling us. You can't dump it out, but you can put something else in that will make all that dirty water of fear and anxiety and all that and self-preservation, it will make it just ooze out. There won't be room for it. Something heavier than the dirty water. I suppose this would have been a neat illustration if I would have planned better for this, but like if you would have put something heavier in that cup and fill it up with whatever is heavier, that, that dirty water is going to ooze out. There's not going to be any room for it. Okay? And so God's love is like that. As we let the perfect love of God come into our cup over the course of following Jesus as disciples, that fear and that anxiety and that worry, it oozes out. There's no room for it. Where the perfect love of God comes in, wave after wave, again and again, as we look to Christ, Fear will be driven out. I believe that this is a promise that many of us need to claim this morning. Even though we can't make it happen and you are trying like crazy just to take your cup and dump it out and you want to be done with it, it's not because you want it in your life. But you cannot get rid of it yourself. The only thing that can drive it out is the love of God. And if you will just continue to, by faith, look to Jesus the author and the perfecter of your faith, I'm telling you that in Christ you can be set free. And we can, all of us, all of us, learn to love like Jesus did. I'm not minimizing what causes your fear. I understand that what happened to you was real and that your fear is real, but the love of God is also real. And it is heavier, it is weightier, it is more glorious than your fear. And it will push it out of your cup as you look to Christ. Romans 5.5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This is why Paul prays for Christians, for Christians, what we need the love of God in this way. Ephesians 3. Verses 14 through 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Jesus, let that be so among us. We want it to happen in an instant, but it will happen as we walk with Jesus in a life of discipleship. And then he comes back around, John, here in this passage, after verse 18, is talking about this perfect love that will cast out the fear of punishment. Um, he says, we love because he first loved us. Why does he say that? 
Because in, in speaking of this perfect love that he wants to drive out fear, he's coming back again and he wants us to remember. God didn't love you because of you. He loved you because he is love. It started with him, not you. Again, remember God's love, he's the initiator, not the responder. This is grace. He didn't respond to anything in us. He did it out of the overflow of who he is. You do not have to be afraid of this God. You can know him as father. You can know him as father. His heart towards us is love and he cares for us. And he proved it by acting in sending his son. He comes back around here. We'll kind of roll into these last two verses of the chapter and then into chapter five. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we, must, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, John throughout this book has repeated several times, if we say one thing but don't do another thing, then it's just not true. And as I started this morning, do, just be honest with yourself. I'm not here to judge your heart. I want you to ask God to search your own heart. Do you know the love of God? If we say, I love God, but hate our brother, we're liars. John's very straightforward, very black and white. Back in chapter two, verse four, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Chapter two, verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We need the love of God to come to us that it might come through us. Now, so he not only speaks of the love that drives out fear, but now he's gonna speak of how the faith that drives our love. Faith that drives our love. And uh, this is pretty important, okay? So just follow the flow of thought here. I'm gonna read slowly, okay? Just, just listen. Verse one of chapter five. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if we've been born of God and other people have been born of God, that means that we're brothers and sisters because we have the same father. And so we love each other because we're part of the same family. Verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God. How do we know that we love the children of God? When we love God and obey his commandments. The most loving thing that you can do for the people in and around your life is to obey God and follow him as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because it might sound simple, but the greatest thing that you can do to love those around you is to wholeheartedly follow Jesus as a disciple. And I'm getting that from the end of verse two, when we love God and obey his commandments. Verse three, four, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And the idea of burdensome here, it literally means heavy, weighty. God's command, it's not, it's not always easy. It, the idea here is it, it's, not, it's not irksome. It's not an irksome burden. Sometimes it's difficult, but in the end, it's not an irksome burden to us to obey his commandments. Why? Because our hearts have been filled with his love. Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God, and now he gets extremely repetitious here. Everyone who has been born of, born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome 
that has overcome the world? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, here's the thing. You see the word in verses 4 and 5, you'll see the word overcome three times. And you see this word victory one time. However, in the Greek, it's all the same word. It's different versions of the word Nike or Nikeo. Okay? That means victory or to overcome. So let me read it again. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now here's what I think is interesting. Is this passage is just saturated with love. And yes, of God's love, but many times it's speaking of our love for one another. And so, I, as you're just reading this, if you've been tracking with what John's saying, I think that you would read it more naturally. Like if I was writing it, I would think that what's coming next would be this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our love. But he doesn't say that. He says, our faith is the victory that, over, that overcomes the world. And the reason for that is, is that faith is not, the reason our faith overcomes the world, the reason our faith gains us victory, is not because of its essence. Like some people talk about, I, I have such great faith. It's, I mean, y- yes, but there's a paradox there. Like it can be true to have great faith. Faith, faith is weakness. Faith is looking away from self. Many times people think that, well, I'm just going to command this thing to do this and I've got great faith. That's, that's not like, that's literally not what faith is. Faith is saying, I can't. Faith is saying, I'm helpless. Faith is the trust of a little child saying, I can't do anything. Faith is not victorious because of the essence of what it is. It is victorious because of the object in whom it believes. Faith is victorious because it looks to Jesus, the Son of God. And as we look to him, what happens? We are born of him. He fills our hearts with his love. This love will come to us, and then this love will come come through us. John Piper says, faith is sustained by looking at Christ crucified and risen, not by turning from Christ to analyze your faith. Paradoxically, if we would experience the joy of faith, we must not focus much on it. We must focus on the greatness of our Savior. Robert Murray McShane, old school good guy from several hundred years ago. This is a great quote. He says, some of you seek for faith much the same way as you would dig for a well. You turn the eye inward upon yourself and search amidst the depths of your polluted heart to find if faith is there. You search amid all your feelings at sermons and sacraments to see if faith is there. And still you find nothing but sin and disappointment. Look full in the face of Jesus. Drink in his word. Faith comes by hearing the voice of Jesus. Our faith is victorious, not because we look to ourselves, not because we look at our own love, but because we look at the one who has loved us. And when this this happens, 
Miracles really do happen. First and foremost, in our own heart. That our hearts that were at one time, one time filled with hate are now filled with love. So I was studying this this past week, and again, I know I've shared it before, but it's my story and I'm sticking to it, okay? So I was just reminded again when I was 18 years old and had grown up in church and yes, accepted Jesus Christ into my heart, but his love was not changing me. I was not letting it change me in any way. I was hard-hearted. I was arrogant. I was proud. Uh, and in many ways, I, would, I was just what you would think a self-willed, self-determining 18-year-old boy would be. And God in his mercy and grace was chasing me down. Not that I sought him, but in his grace he was seeking me. And it has been a long process and I still have so much fear different times in my heart that I'm asking the love of God to squish out. But it was, I believe, the first Sunday in July of 2020, about a month after I graduated, that after being a hard-hearted, rebellious, yet religious sinner, that I sat in church and heard a message that I'd heard a thousand times before about how it's only by grace through faith. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit took it and he filled me with the love of God. And I have not been the same since. I've not been the same. Still far from perfect. And my heart, many times still, waves of fear come. And so self-preservation kicks in, and I don't love well. But that does not negate the fact that Jesus has saved me, and that his love has and is changing me. And I'm sure that all of us would all of us on certain levels could describe our lives in that way. But I want to say to you this morning, if you are here, and as I've been describing the love of God and what it does, if you've never known that, then just right now, where you sit, would you just trust Jesus? Just trust him. Part of what makes the good news, the good news, isn't just that God did what only he could do for us, because we could never do it in offering the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
But the other part of the good news that it's only received by faith. The verse that we've quoted here, no matter who's been standing in this pulpit, more than probably any other since we've started the church, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. No one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works like love, which God prepared in advance for you to do. If you do not know where you will spend eternity because you do not know the love of God, if you do not know God as your heavenly Father but only as a judge, please, I invite you right now to trust him. Just trust him. If you're getting baptized, you can get up and go out um, worship team I'm totally going off script here uh, but I want you to come up are you here Nate come on up I should have told those getting baptized to go out earlier but I completely left my notes a long time ago, so, which is okay. So you're gonna have to sing a song, and you're gonna go sit down, and we're gonna baptize people, and then we're gonna sing another song, okay? It's fine. But I want us to sing My King Forever again. You good with that? Okay. You gave your life for mine, nailed to the cross, you crucified. All my sin and shame, it was washed by your mercy. You are the treasure I find, my reason for living, so let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy. And if you wanna make that decision for the first time this morning, Okay, as we stand and sing, I promise you nobody's gonna be looking at you or whatever, but I'm gonna be standing in the back. They're all gonna be facing this way. But if you wanna accept Jesus Christ as your savior this morning, I'm gonna go back there, and I'd love to pray with you as we sing this song. You guys good? Okay.